Well, good morning, Compass Church. Great to see all of you. I hope you've had a, a Jesus-filled Christmas season. Uh, our family's been trying to keep Jesus in the center of this pandemonium that we call Christmas, right? Um, I can tell you, the clients, we're praying for a polar vortex to descend on Chicago because we filled our ice rink yesterday and we're waiting for some ice now. So, so we'll see who's more righteous. Now you're all praying against the polar vortex. I'm praying for the polar vortex. We can have a contest. So you can hear this morning that my voice is a little compromised. So this could be the first time you've ever heard me not go like this uh, when I preach. I'll just be calm, soothing tones this morning from the stage. Okay? Let's pray together and we'll get started. Lord God, we're here again in your presence, uh, expectant, expectant, Lord, that you have a word for us. So Lord, we open uh, your book, we sit quietly before you, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would um, move mightily among us as we reflect on your word together. In your mighty name we pray, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Why don't you use your imagination this morning with me? Let me pretend that there's a piece of paper that goes all the way out that wall, all the way out this wall, all the way up through the ceiling, all the way down to the floor, as far as you can see. I'm going to take an imaginary pin, poke a hole in the paper right here. That's the planet Earth. All the mountains, oceans, trees, people, represented by that one single hole. I'm going to go five-eighths of an inch away, poke another hole. That's the moon. I'm going to go 19 feet down my paper, poke a two-inch hole. That's the sun. If I travel from the original spot, 600 feet down my paper, two football fields, I will reach the planet Neptune. In order for me to get to the nearest star, I would have to travel from here to Denver, Colorado to poke my next hole. Distances in space are so vast, they're measured in light years. That's the distance that light travels in a year. It travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's so fast that I could get from here to Los Angeles, California in one sixtieth of a second at the speed of light. If I shot a bullet around the earth at the speed of light, it would hit me seven times before I hit the ground, even if I fell in one second. At the speed of light, I could go from here to the moon in eight seconds, from here to the sun in 12 minutes. But it would take me 11 hours to reach Neptune. And it would take me 4.3 years to get to the nearest star. Now, the God who made all that, who fashioned it with his hands, who spoke it into existence, the one who surrounds it all, that immense God, he wants to have a relationship with you and me. He wants a deep, intimate connection with us. It's crazy to think about. It's even crazier to think about how does that work? Exactly. I mean, when you put your mind around this immense God inside the whole universe is contained, how do you begin to relate to that God? 
They can be difficult to figure out. What do you have to do? How do you have to act? What are the special ways that you've got to position your life to get that God, you know, to relate to you? And that's kind of how we think. You know, we think that to get this immense God to really pay attention to us, we have to perform. We have to make ourselves lovable. We have to do certain things to get his attention. So this morning, we want to think about this relationship with God. And we're going to use one single verse, basically, to think about it. I first started thinking about this verse years ago when I read a book by an author and pastor named Frederick Beekner. Uh, he wrote about this verse. And I'm going to show you the verse in a minute. But before we look at it, it's from Exodus 19, verse 5. I want to, I want to set the stage for you a little bit. So three months before this verse happens in the Bible... Israel is still in slavery in Egypt. Uh, God is orchestrating a dramatic uh, deliverance from slavery. He's bringing the plagues on the Egyptians. In Exodus 19.1, it says, On the first day of the third month, Israel arrived at Sinai. Two months before this, they were walking through the Red Sea with the walls of water on both sides. And they were turning around to watch the waters swallow the whole Egyptian army before them. And then God took his people and on purpose led them into the wilderness. Do you know there's a road called the way of the sea that is a major highway of the day? And do you know that Israel could have arrived in Canaan about three to four weeks after they left Egypt? Most uh, historical records show that armies marched that road on a regular basis and made it from Egypt to Canaan in about three weeks. But God chooses to lead his people into the wilderness because he wants to relate to them. He wants to build a relationship with them. He wants them to learn to turn to him, to trust in him, to look to him. He wants to teach them um, what it means to live as distinctly his people, not in the Egyptian way that they had learned to live for 400 years. So he takes them into the wilderness because he wants to take Egypt out of Israel he wants to establish this relationship with them. And he leads them to the very mountain where Moses first saw the burning bush, Mount Sinai. And there they camp below the mountain. And Moses goes up to meet with God while the people wait. Now, this is what God tells Moses. Moses, I want you to go down to these people before anything else happens. I want you to tell them this. And this is where we pick up the story, Exodus 19.5. So, Check out this verse. This is, what, this is what God's message through Moses was. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples in the earth. For all the earth belongs to me. I want to show it to you in the message version. It says like this. As Moses went up to meet with God, God called down to him from the mountain. Speak to the house of Jacob. Tell the people of Israel. You have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. If you will listen obediently to what I say and keep my covenant, out of all peoples, you'll be my special treasure. The whole earth is mine to choose from, but you're special, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, the word I want you to focus on is the word translated there, special treasure. In Hebrew, it has some other translations, and the Amplified Bible shows us one of the other translations, so we'll put that up now. 
Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice in the truth and keep my covenant, and you shall be my own peculiar possession and treasure from among and above all peoples, for all the earth is mine. I love that translation of the Hebrew word. My own peculiar possession and treasure. Now, it's not nice to call someone peculiar even if it's true. True? I mean, if I come up to you and say, you know, you're a very peculiar person. I'd be saying to you, you're kind of odd. You're sort of strange. You're a little weird. You're distinctive would be a nice way to say it. You're unique. I love how God says to his people, you will be my peculiar treasure and possession. That's interesting. That's interesting. That catches your eye, doesn't it? Now I started to think, how can I help you understand a peculiar treasure? Then I realized I actually have a peculiar treasure of my own. I am 54. This dog is 53. My mom gave him to me, gave him back to me. She kind of saved him all these years. And I used to sleep with this dog when I was one, two, and three years old, roughly in there somewhere. I think I stopped at three, but you never know. Sometimes I still take him out, you know. Now, his name is Morgan. And you can see that Morgan's gone through some difficult times. His eyeballs are gone. He's blind. He's been through several surgeries. You can see my mom tried to sew them together and keep stuffing things in there, but it just keeps falling out. His fur's been rubbed off pretty badly, and he's got some other issues. Watch this. If you hold him like this, his head's a little droopy. Worse than that, his butt is droopy also. And if you hold him in the center, his head and butt get really close together, which is a bad, bad condition. My grandma saw this dog, and she said to my mom, this is disgusting. You could get some diseases from that thing. So she said, I'm going to go out and buy him a bigger and better and newer Morgan. It's time to replace that one. So she went out to the store. She got me a Morgan that even barked when you squeezed him. And I put him, uh, I looked at him. I'm like, well, that's cool. And put him on my shelf. Because even though it's peculiar, this is my Morgan. He's unique. He's a little weird. He's distinctive. But I treasure him. Not some new version. Now I suspect when God looks down from heaven, (laughs) huh? You relate to him, don't you? I relate to him. Sometimes I'm a little blind. I've been through several surgeries. My fur's been rubbed off. Worse than that, sometimes my head droops. Even worse, my, my butt droops. And I've often found myself with my head and butt too closely aligned in a variety of situations. And if I were God, frankly, watching this whole thing going on down here, I'd probably throw it out and start over again. How about you? But you know what's peculiar? He says, no, these are my treasures. I see them for who they are. I know exactly what they're about. They're peculiar to me. And I peculiarly treasure and love them as my own special possession. That's a powerful image. And it gets even cooler if you start to think about how God unfolds this relationship with people in the scripture. I mean, just let's go back to Noah, for instance. It says in Genesis that Noah was the most righteous man to ever live at that time. 
And that God looked down from heaven and the wickedness he saw grieved him. So he chose Noah, this most righteous man, to build a boat to save the world and preserve it so he could go forward with a new plan. Right? That's the part you read in Sunday school. And Noah was crazy enough to go through with it. But the part you don't read in Sunday school is found in Genesis chapter 9. When Noah leaves the ark, he builds a vineyard. From the grapes in the vineyard, he makes wine. And in Genesis 9, he drinks the wine so much so that he becomes drunk on the wine, takes off all of his clothes, falls down naked and drunk in his tent, and his sons find him. This is the most righteous man that lived, the guy that God chose to rebuild society from. This is peculiar. This is weird. How about Abraham? I mean, this guy's known as the father of our faith, right? He has his own song. Father Abraham had many sons. You know what I'm He's so full of faith, he has his own song. It's amazing. And, and uh, he's, he's, he's held, held up as the guy who has the most faith. But when Abraham gets to Egypt, he lies about his wife's identity. And when God comes to him in his old age, him and his wife, and says, I'm going to deliver you a child in your own age that will fulfill the promise, that will make you a blessing to all peoples on the earth from here on out, Abraham and Sarah laugh. They find this to be humorous. Yet God holds Abraham up as the, the ultimate example of faith. This is peculiar. How about Abraham's grandson, Jacob? He's a quite upstanding citizen. He goes in, prompted by his mom, who favors him over his brother, dysfunctional family. And he dresses up like his brother, puts on the fur, makes himself smell like his brother, makes his dad a a little meal. And then he goes into his blind father, fools him, lies to him, steals his brother's birthright, and runs off into the wilderness to head for his uncle Laban's house to hide out. And when he goes to sleep on a rock in the middle of the wilderness, God comes to him in a dream and says, Jacob, I am very pleased with you. I will bless you. I'll make you a great nation. All the peoples in the earth will be blessed through your line. I will give you this land that you're laying on. This is peculiar, folks. How about David? David's known as the man after God's own heart. You know what he did? While his army was out to war, David looks through the bathroom window of the girl next door. She was someone else's wife, by the way. He invited her over because he liked what he saw. He slept with her. He got her pregnant. When he realized what he had done, he invited her husband home from the front lines, gave him a nice meal, and told him to go home and sleep with his wife. But he was too honorable, even though he was a Hittite, to do this. So he slept on the porch of David's palace. The next night, David got him drunk, sent him back over to his wife, but again he slept on the stoop of the palace. So when David realized that this wasn't going to work, he signed his death sentence, sealed it with his ring, and set Uriah the Hittite, his faithful soldier, back to the front lines to lose his life to cover David's tracks. When word came back that Uriah was dead, David took Bathsheba as his wife. 
you know what happens when Jesus rides into Jerusalem 1,000 years later? He is hailed as the son of David. That is weird. Now, I can keep going, folks. You know Peter, right? The guy who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, makes this amazing statement. And then when Jesus is in hour of greatest need, Peter doesn't have the courage to say he belongs with Jesus and he leaves his friend in the lurch. He runs off and hides. Eventually goes back to fishing. Yet Peter's the guy that Jesus says on this rock, on his confession, on his life, I will build my church. On people just like Peter, I will build my church. How about Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene, it says in the Bible, had seven demons in her when Jesus met her. She probably was a woman of ill repute. When Jesus leaves the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, resurrection day, who does he meet? Mary Magdalene. And he gives her the most important message ever carried by anyone in the history of humanity. Go and tell the others that I am alive. And this former prostitute, former demon-possessed woman carries this message to the disciples and delivers it to them. This is peculiar. God peculiarly treasures broken people like you and I. He chooses to. Now, this, is, this has taught me a lot of things about my relationship with God. I want to share a few with you this morning. The first thing is this. When it comes to my relationship with God, I think that it has a lot more to do with probably God starting it and God sustaining it and God keeping it going. I mean, think about God's relationship with the people of Israel. He leads them into the wilderness. They run out of water. They start to grumble and complain and say, take us back to Egypt. He gives them water, miraculously. This is after they've gone through the Red Sea, guys. Most of us say, if God would just give me a miracle, I'd be totally straight and narrow then. Sure you would. Just check out Israel. They had miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. They saw God in a pillar of fire over the temple and a cloud. He literally moved over the top of them, and they still couldn't get it. So that means my relationship with God, your relationship with God, must be something that God really sustains and has happened. Now, I learned this a little bit being a dad. Because when I first had my first son, I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't going to get a lot from this kid. He would just lay there in my arms and fill his diaper. Then I got to change that diaper. A lot of fun. That would happen like five and six times a day. I got to feed him. I got to lose sleep in the middle of the night. Remember, I got to get up and go get him out of his crib when he started screaming for no reason in the middle of the night. Get to bring him to my wife. The reason that I got up is because my wife is kind of blind. She's like a negative eight without her contacts. So one night she went up and got the baby. I heard him stop crying. Then I heard walk, 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 walk. Then I heard thud. Then I heard the baby start crying. I'm like, honey, did you just walk into the wall with our baby? Yes, I did. I'm like... So I thought to really avoid the brain damage for later on, I would just go ahead and get the baby. If you think about it, though, as a dad, 
I have given to my kids and given to my kids and given to my kids and taught my kids and provided for my kids, and it still goes on. I mean, my oldest son's 19. I'm starting to get back a little bit. But the relationship's really on me. That's the same thing with God. He just keeps giving and giving. You know what he gets back? He gets back you looking into his eyes, and you're receiving what he wants to give you. So like a baby, sometimes you just have to kind of lay there and let God just pour his grace on you. Just let him treasure you. It's peculiar that he would treasure you, but he does. The second thing I learned about uh, my relationship with God in this is that it seems like um, God chooses people not because of who they are, but because of who he is. You know, like he reaches down and he selects these people, Israel. They don't really have any great special qualities about them. If you read the story, I mean, they're a pretty messed up group. But because of his grace that he pours out on them, they become his peculiar treasures. That grace is really undeserved. That favor is not deserved. If you read the people of Israel's story, they, they're called Israel because they wrestle with God. They struggle with God. That's what the name Israel means. So just like us who wrestle with God, God decides to pour his grace out on us. And in his grace, in spite of ours, in spite of our droopy butts, continue to love us and relate to us. Now, now grace is amazing because it's described, I mean, I think Moses first got it at the burning bush. Moses was a murderer. He had run off into the wilderness from Egypt as a murderer. And God approaches him at the burning bush and calls him to himself into a new relationship and says, Moses, I've got a job for you to do. Moses argues with God. He's like, I'm the wrong guy for the job. God insists, no, Moses, in my grace, you're the right guy for the job. Jesus compared this grace to a son who went off into the far country and ended up wasting his life in the pig trough, living a crazy, revelous life with all kinds of stuff, wasting his inheritance. And then when he comes back home, crawling back to be his father's slave, his father meets him on the road with his arms open wide saying, hey, son, welcome home. Jesus says this grace is like a sheep that gets lost and the shepherd leaves all the 99 there in the fold and he, he searches relentlessly for that one sheep that's lost till he finds him and brings him back to the fold. You know, we in the church, we think we understand this grace. I don't know that we do. We, we often tell highly edited versions of our stories because we think we have to perform in front of each other and in front of God. We don't really know how to rely or rest on this grace that God is giving us. This peculiar grace that comes our way, even though we don't deserve it. I was saying last night, even this is interesting because you see me preach up here and God does something through my life up here. But if you came and lived with me, you'd be a lot less enamored with me at that point. You can ask my wife and my kids. They're not as enamored with me as you are. <laughs> they got to live with me. 
There, there's something interesting about the way we do church. It's like we put on our best suits and we think we have to perform and we got to be these, you know, what, whatever made us think that our real stories don't give glory to God. The fact that I'm preaching a sermon in front of you, if you knew my whole story, is an absolute statement and testimony that there must be a God. And it's peculiar that he would use someone like me to speak his message to you. In fact, we often look across the room, we compare each other's sins. You know, that guy's a smoker. That guy over there, he's, he's kind of a drinker. I heard this guy over here, he, he looks at pornography. Ooh, that person over there, I think they're struggling with homosexuality. Oh, that guy over there, he's an adulterer. He's a liar. She's a this, he's a that. Really? You think that's God's perspective? This God who peculiarly treasures people in spite of who they are, not because of who they are? Look what Philip Yancey said about this. I once read that proportionally the surface of the earth is smoother than a billiard ball. The heights of Mount Everest and the troughs of the Pacific Ocean are very impressive to those of us who live on this planet. But from the view of Andromeda, or even Mars, those differences matter not at all. That is how I see the petty behavioral differences between one Christian group and another. Compared to a holy and perfect God, the loftiest Everest of rules amounts to a molehill. You cannot earn God's acceptance by climbing. You must receive it as a gift. So your relationship with God is about relying on God's grace. Knowing that he peculiarly treasures you for who you are. Thirdly, I want you to know this. I believe God can use anyone in this room to do his work. If he used Noah and David and Moses, he can use you. Nothing you have done disqualifies you from being used by God. No sin, no whatever, because in Jesus Christ, God makes people new in their weakness and brokenness. I met a compelling guy a few years ago at Lawndale Community Church in the city. Um, got to know the assistant pastor, Jojo, and got to hear his story. Jojo was one of the original members of that church. He went to the original Bible study started by Wayne Gordon in his living room. Became a Christian there. Then went to the army and started taking drugs. When he came back to Lawndale, he was a drug addict. and began to live in the dumpsters and the crack houses around Lawndale. His life was a mess. Wayne Gordon, the pastor of the church, would drive around, find Jojo on the street corner and say to him, Jojo, God loves you, and so do I. Never forget that. Then he would drive away. When Jojo crawled in a bathtub one night and slit his wrists because his life wasn't worth living, and he woke up the next morning still alive, he knew where to go, across the street to see Wayne Gordon, the guy that reminded him that God loved him. And so did he. Wayne Gordon got Jojo help. And because of that help, Jojo now runs the uh, Hope House ministry there, which has rehabbed over 700 alcohol and drug addicts off the streets of Lawndale. Jojo's the assistant pastor at the church. 
Some of you today sit here and think, God can never use me. I'm a mess. My life's a mess. Guess what? It's not true. You're a peculiar treasure. If you rest in the grace of God, he can use you and remake your life into something amazing. It may even be the very thing you've done that he'll use to change the world through your life. There's one last thing I learned by my relationship with God from this idea, and that is this. Maybe, maybe in our greatest moments of weakness is God's greatest, uh, beginning of God's greatest use of our lives. Think about the Apostle Paul, for example. Remember Paul? He, uh, he was convinced that Christianity was bad, and he was determined to eradicate it from the earth. He stood and watched people throw stones at a man and kill him just because he was a Christian. And it says in Acts chapter 8 that he gave his approval to this process. He was on his way to Damascus to drag people out of their homes and put them in prison for being followers of Jesus. When Jesus knocked him off his donkey and changed the course of his life forever. Paul became the greatest planter of churches in the history of the church. It was his moment of greatest failure that led to this place. Chuck Colson, you know who Chuck Colson is? He, uh, he was, of course, the guy in Nixon's cabinet, Watergate, planted the bugs in the Watergate Hotel, got put in prison, became a Christian. In his book, Loving God, he reflects on his life. He's actually sitting on a platform of a prison, and this is what he says. As I sat on the platform, waiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back in time to scholarships and honors earned, cases argued and won, great decisions made from lofty government offices. My life had been the perfect success story, the great American dream fulfilled. But all at once, I realized it was not my success God had used to enable me to help those in this prison or hundreds of others just like it. My life of success was not what made this morning so glorious. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience that I could not glory in for his glory. Is it possible that your greatest slip-up, your greatest failure, the thing you take the most shame in, could be the beginning of God's greatest use of your life? That would be peculiar, wouldn't it? But God peculiarly treasures people like you and me. I'll close with this. A reading from a book uh, about grace by Philip Yancey. He writes about a uh, concert going on in Wembley Stadium in London. 100,000 people are gathered there. All kinds of rock bands are playing. It's a raucous environment. Things are going crazy. The crowd is whooped up. And here's how he begins to describe it. For 12 hours, groups like Guns N' Roses have blasted the crowd through banks of speakers, riling up fans already high on booze and dope. The crowd yells for more curtain calls and the rock groups oblige. Meanwhile, Jesse Norman 
sits in her dressing room discussing Amazing Grace with Bill Moyers. The hymn was written, of course, by John Newton, a coarse, cruel slave trader. He first called out to God in the midst of a storm that nearly threw him overboard. Newton came to see the light only gradually, continuing to ply his trade even after his conversion. He wrote the song, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, while waiting in an African harbor for a shipment of slaves. Later, though, he renounced his profession, became a minister, and joined William Wilberforce in the fight against slavery. John Newton never lost sight of the depths from which he had been lifted. He never lost sight of grace. When he wrote that saved a wretch like me, he meant those words with all his heart. Jesse Norman tells Bill Moyers that Newton may have borrowed an old tune sung by slaves themselves, redeeming the song just as he had been redeemed. Finally, the time comes for her to sing. A single circle of light follows Norman, a majestic African-American woman, wearing a flowing African dashiki as she strolls on stage. No backup band, no musical instruments, just Jesse. The crowd stirs, restless. Few recognize the opera diva. A voice yells for more guns and roses. Others take up the cry. The scene's getting ugly. Alone, a cappella, Jesse Norman begins to sing very slowly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. A remarkable thing happens in Wembley Stadium that night. 70,000 raucous fans fall silent before her aria of grace. By the time Norman reaches the second verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Several thousand fans are singing along, digging far back in nearly lost memories for words they heard long ago. And we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, We've no less days to sing God's praise when we first begun. Jesse Norman later confessed she had no idea what power descended at Wembley Stadium that night. I think I know. The world thirsts for grace. When grace descends, the world falls silent. This new year, I have one goal for you. Rely on, rest in, depend on the grace of a God who peculiarly treasures you. The world's hungry for that kind of people, for that kind of life. Let's pray. Lord God, your grace is truly amazing. And Lord, we need to learn to rest in that grace. Lord, help us to stop performing and comparing and working and simply to turn to you and receive from you what you want to give us. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.